Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas, with a celebration of the life and work of Austrian philosopher Leopold Kor, apostle of smallness. In a small community, everything happens as in a large community, with the difference that there you can grasp it. As in Gulliver's travels, as a phrase that in the small circle are just as many degrees as in a large one. But in a large one, you get lost, you don't see the others, you become a specialist, alien. In a small one, you see them all. That is the essence of universalism. For more than half a century, Leopold Kor has been reflecting on the proper proportions of human communities. Twenty years before Schumacher brought out Small is Beautiful, or the Club of Rome called for Limits to Growth, Kor published The Breakdown of Nations. Behind all forms of social misery, he wrote in that book, lies one cause, bigness. Size generates power, and power tempts society irresistibly to violence. The Solution Corps claimed lies not in improving the moral character of human beings, but in reducing the damage they can do by reducing the scale on which they can do it. During the 60s, this philosophy of limits was taken up by a number of thinkers, notably Ivan Illich and E.F. Schumacher, both of whom called Kaur their teacher. Today, it animates a variety of influential social movements, but Kaur, often unacknowledged, was the grandfather. So tonight, on Ideas, we look into the beginnings and the ends of the thought of Leopold Kaur. The program is written and presented by David Cayley. In the early 1930s, the British biologist J.B.S. Haldane published an essay called On Being the Right Size. In this essay, he pointed to the integration of form and function in nature, arguing that every creature has exactly the size and shape it needs to get its living. A horse wouldn't get far on a mouse's legs, nor a mouse on a horse's. The point seems obvious enough once it's been made, but it has profound implications. Leopold Kaur drew out these implications by developing a philosophy of social size. Societies, too, have their proper scales, he argued, and they exceed them at their peril. He first put forward this idea in Toronto in 1939, telling an audience at the University of Toronto that peace would come not through unifying the nations of the world, but through breaking them apart. Fifty years later, in the summer of 1989, Leopold Kaur again addressed a meeting at the University of Toronto, this time lecturing to a group of his intellectual descendants at the annual conference of a group which calls itself the Fourth World. I had the pleasure of meeting Leopold Kaur during that conference and of receiving him as a guest in my home. I found him charming and completely original and would gladly have listened to his stories for much longer than the time we actually had together. Leopold Kaur is deaf, and has been since his years in Toronto during the war. But through the use of a small microphone attached to a hearing aid, he's able to make out what is said to him directly. Before he left Toronto, we were able to record an interview, and these recorded reminiscences of an old man returning to a scene of his youth make up tonight's program. Leopold Kor was born in Obendorf, an Austrian village in the vicinity of Salzburg, and the place where the beloved Christmas carol Silent Night was composed by the village schoolmaster in the early 19th century. Young Leopold got the story wrong and thought that it had been composed by his own schoolmaster. When I asked him to compare himself to other thinkers in his lineage, like Illich and Schumacher, he said that they came from Nazareth, he from Bethlehem meaning that they were drawn to the philosophy of smallness by its intellectual cogency, while he was actually born into this reality and has it in his bones. He spent his student years in Salzburg, reflecting on the beauty of that small city-state, the northern Rome, 
with all its glories the handiwork of a population of not more than 150,000 people. He did graduate study in Paris, Vienna, and the London School of Economics, and took a law degree at Innsbruck. Eventually, having no other definite plan for getting a living, he went to Spain as a freelance journalist to cover the Spanish Civil War. But he went there with a curious and original question. It was not the clash of titanic forces which interested him, but the question of how people managed to live in spite of war. He wanted to study what the Spanish philosopher Miguel Unamuno called peace in war. In Spain, he met other writers also drawn to this pivotal conflict, Ernest Hemingway, André Malraux, and notably George Orwell. George Orwell, I met in cafes. He stayed away from the official press environment. Uh, he had been a soldier, not a journalist there, and tried to get out of Spain. So I met him in a cafe where most Spaniards spent all waking hours <laughs> of the day. I still remember the signs. Uh, the enemy is only 150 kilometers away. So with the idea, while you are sipping your coffee, <laughs> remember. <laughs> well, no one remembered that. <clears throat> they sipped the coffee. Well, one day the fellow came, dangling, tallish, and asked whether he could sit by my table. You know, everything was crowded, every table. I had one room, uh, one seat. Free, and as a matter of fact, there was only room for two. And uh, so I said, of course. And she said, well, anyone uh, who uh, introduces himself nowadays uses a false name. At any rate, my name is George Orwell. And of course, this was a false name. His real name was Eric Blair. But from that day on, a series of week, we always met. I had no idea who he was, but what struck me was uh, uh, our conversations. So the attitude towards the emerging age of mass dominance. People said afterwards he was a prophet anticipating the things to come in his 1984. He didn't anticipate things to, to come. We talked about what was going on around us in 1937. Orwell and Cor had a very similar sense of what was going on in Spain. Cor would say later that Orwell's book 1984 and his The Breakdown of Nations were like siblings, the very different fruits of a common experience. Orwell, as he records in Homage to Catalonia, was already disillusioned with the alphabet soup of ideologies at play in Spain. Both men saw the individual increasingly crushed by the weight of the mass. So Cor sought out the human face of Spain. I wanted to see how uh, people can live in the midst of war. What one read outside, so at that time there was many demonstrations all over, anti-nuclear demonstrations, our green demonstrations in Germany or Italy for the fascists in Spain and the rest for the republicans, exposing the repressions. But so I went and said, how can they live if all this is true? So when I was in Valencia, Almeria was bombed by a German battleship. So I still remember André Malraux in the press room dictating with a sonorous, shaking French voice. When he spoke, I never knew was he shaken by the beauty of French, which moved him so much, or by the event he described. Not a single of these glamorous bunch of journalists had the idea of going to Almeria and checking. Well, it would not have been possible, but the head of the Spanish press bureau of the, of the government, Constanza de la Mora, she told Monsieur George Young, who had established uh, hospitals 
in Alicante, Murcia and Almeria that he wants a driver who, as his Oxford student driver, had deserted back home. He had the quantity needed for graduation, <laughs> for emotional graduation. <clears throat> so I um, had this unique chance of driving there in Murcia. Uh, there was a party, and by the time we came to Almeria, peace, peace, utter peace, sleepiness. People were dozing on the walls, on the sea walls, where two days earlier bombs fell. So this is what interested me, the life in the midst of war. Uh, the question, what does one do? Here's this terror picture of bombing in Valencia. I experienced a lot of bombing in Madrid. But how, are they all nervous wrecks? So I went down, we went down into the basement of the high-rise buildings, and what did I see? Mothers with their babies, and the, there was no one more beautifully groomed than the girls and wives of the soldiers fighting because there was war. So they made a special effort to look lovely. And the children in their loving hands, the bombs dropped outside. What concerned them is to play with the lips, the eyes, the heads of their babies. So this is what um, the picture that is always withheld. And that is what interested me. What course saw it in Spain? was what he would seek all his life. The sense of proportion, the saving grace of simple pleasures, and a feeling for the good which is aesthetic rather than ideological. The contrast with André Malraux is striking. Malraux, with his sonorous dispatches from the front, appeared to Cor as a man besotted with history and its heroic dreams. Cor turned aside from dreams of greatness and gigantic accomplishment. What he saw in Spain was the grinding machinery of the mass age, the convulsive workings of history which blot out the modest proportions of the individual. The element that we worship, the great collective entities, the mass element, people, government for often by the people, people get uh, hot with enthusiasm about it. But the meaning of Western democracy is not government of the people, for the people, by the people. It is government of the individual, for the individual, against the people, because this massive element can put us under its heel and we have not the chance. So I have always emphasized the way we interpret things that make us hot, steamed with enthusiasm, are the most devastating distortions of individual freedom. Cor left Spain, confirmed in his desire to seek alternatives to the mass society. But he did not despair of anarchism, the philosophy which animated so many of the Spanish Republicans. Rather, he sought to give the term a different meaning, claiming for it something of the sense of Gandhi's Swaraj, or self-rule. To this day, I identify myself philosophically as an anarchist, uh, which uh, is always misconstrued. A world without ruler is not necessarily a world without order. But to keep order without the ruler who gives you direction to this or that, the individual must be so ethically prepared, so considerate, so respectful of everybody else's fear as a co-sovereign, that the idea of violence is the worst contradiction to the idea of anarchism. And one must realize that anarchism, a world without a rule, is something vastly different from anarchy. Anarchy is a mess. 
And that is what the modern anarchists are trying to mess things up, degrading the name of anarchism. Leopold Kaur left Spain in 1938 and went to Paris, where he wrote for a French news agency. His native Austria was already Nazi, and when Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia, Kaur decided to leave Europe for America. He landed in New York penniless and with only a visitor's visa. To gain more permanent status, he had to apply from outside the country, and so he came to Toronto for a day to obtain an immigrant visa. When I found I could get the visa, I meant to take the next train back, but had a casual address to Mrs. Rong. I rang as I had four hours to wait for the train back. And she asked, well, come over for tea. So I arrived for tea in sandals without socks and stayed in the house for two and a half years so beating all the records of the men who came to dinner. He stayed only one year after dinner, <laughs> after two and a half years. When you can't reach for things, they fall into your lap. The house where Kors stayed on Walmer Road was the home of Professor George Wrong. Wrong had founded the Department of History at the University of Toronto, where he was surrounded by a brilliant and influential circle of students and colleagues. Kor became his secretary, and participated in this circle. His faculty made Canada the only country that was ruled by historians. So Mackenzie King, Vincent Massey, Hume Brong, his son, a very distinguished ambassador, and, and the last of his tribe was Lester Pearson. And when I asked Professor Rong once, how on earth did you assemble this marvelous faculty of wise historians around you? So he said, well, he was the head of the department, the founder of the Department of History. He said, well, very simple. I had a simple rule. My, the members of my staff had to be scholars, and had to be gentlemen. And if they knew something of their subject, all the better. <laughs> so it was a wonderful experience for me. Kaur flourished in Toronto. He wrote for Saturday Night, Le Dois in Ottawa, The Globe and Mail, and various other Canadian papers. And he began to work out his philosophy of smallness. The basic idea dawned on him while he was living with the wrongs. At one breakfast conversation, after Clarence Trite, a famous journalist author of the time, had brought out a book, Union Now. So the war had started, and Canada was already in it. So he suggested one must plan for the future so the Atlantic allies should unite into a single community. After the war, Europe should unite with the defeated and then with the world. Union now, but should start now. And as an amusement, I suggested maybe the solution is in the opposite direction. So let's investigate, or let's follow in our thoughts what would happen instead of uniting the small, dismember the big. Well, at the end of the breakfast, the new thought had made at least one convert, myself. A growing society, when it reaches a given point, has always exploded, like the supernova and the stars. So the annihilating element awaiting us all is not disunion, but growth, overgrowth, everyone hailed growth. One of my first articles 
published on the subject, the economic aspect of smallness, was published by the University of London, Ontario, in Business Quarterly, which bears the subtitle, The Limits to Growth. Forty years later, the Club of Rome picked it up. Kaur's new idea was first expressed, as I mentioned earlier, in a lecture at Hart House. An essay called Disunion Now for the American left Catholic magazine Commonweal gave it wider circulation. Then this time of intellectual flowering was marred by a great and unexpected grief. Kaur suddenly lost his hearing, at first partially and then almost completely. Medical specialists were unable to help. He decided that a change of climate might do him good and moved to California. There he continued his writing while working as a photographer's apprentice and night watchman at the YMCA. Eventually his good luck reappeared and he was asked by the Carnegie Foundation to make a study of customs unions. The document he prepared became one of the foundations of the Treaty of Rome which established the European Common Market in 1957. When that was finished, I came to Rutgers University, where I taught for 10 years in New Brunswick, New Jersey. That is where I wrote the breakdown of nations in three weeks, in a snowed-in Christmas period. No one there, everything deep in snow, everyone on holiday. In the morning, the tracks are left to the deep snow. In the evening, there were still the only tracks that were, and the lamps under their coachman caps of snow, and this utter undisturbed peace. I wrote the chapter every day, almost without break. And after three weeks, the day came when I put in the end. <laughs> the Breakdown of Nations is a book of considerable ambition. He is searching, Kaur says at the beginning, for a theory by which all phenomena of the social universe can be reduced to a common denominator. He asks why great efflorescences of civilization, like the European Renaissance, have so often been accompanied by such barbarous cruelty. Why great nations so often go to war, quite regardless of their character or professed principles. And he answers that they have crossed a threshold which he calls critical magnitude, a combination of density, technological power, and sheer numbers. A nation, he says, becomes spontaneously aggressive when its power reaches a critical volume. The same process also functions in reverse. When a nation's power recedes, so does its belligerence. That is why formerly warlike nations like Sweden or Portugal today have a more amicable disposition. Ideology, he believes, is only a secondary cause, functioning as a kind of accelerator of social size. In The Breakdown of Nations, Kaur writes as a social scientist, but often his analysis seems supported by a more theological shrewdness. Sometimes he makes me think of the line in the Lord's Prayer which asks, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, a line which modern translators render as, let us not be put to the test. Power corrupts, according to Kaur, and we can only avoid the test we inevitably fail by arranging our societies so that we avoid this temptation. The penultimate chapters of Kaur's book are called Can It Be Done? and Will It Be Done? Can It Be Done? leads him into a lengthy description of how a process of national devolution might work. Will It Be Done? is answered with what one reviewer called the shortest chapter ever written, the single word no on an otherwise blank page. It can, of course, be done. It, nothing would be easier, because the small states still exist to this day and must just take the veil away from their unifying cover. But size, bigness, one of the devastating things, it overpowers you, it rolls over you. And we all are accessible to this awful temptation. I'm always overwhelmed by London, by New York, this 
so unmasked like Ulysses, you have to train yourself to a mast when you pass by the sirens, that your sailors don't follow your command, land there and be destroyed. But the people are not trained, the statesmen are not trained to the mass. It is a power that when a community reaches a given size, it is no longer a community of individuals, but individuals are particles of a mass. This century has started with nine big powers, now there are two left. And before too long, there will be one left and none. So this is physics. Nature, when things can no longer be restrained, the cells in the body, through aging, they break down the barriers. So they begin to fuse. It becomes cancer, and that is the end. And when a star, at a given point gets growing, well, nature's device of solving this cancer's disturbance in the stellar universe helps it grow into a supernova, then it explodes. Plant specialists inject weed with growth serum. They don't tear it out, which is very hard. They let themselves be destroyed by injecting growth serums. And then the world in our time has injected itself first with the League of Nations, now with the United Nations. And we are, as Toynbee has pointed out, at the great cultural unifying elements, this has always been the penultimate step to destruction. The United World will disintegrate and start again at the point where it was when the Lord gave its, his curse on the unified structure of the Tower of Babel and forced everyone to speak a different language that they should not understand each other. Because when we do understand each other, we conspire, as Adam Smith said. So not everyone knowing what the other is saying, as I do with my deafness, I have the most peaceful existence. I don't hear insults. I smile, which embarrasses people who insult me until they begin to talk nicely. The Breakdown of Nations was written at Rutgers in the early 1950s, but didn't see the light until 1957. Publisher after publisher refused the manuscript. Then, once again, a chance encounter changed Cor's life and luck. In my life, I never was able to reach for anything. The great things fell into my lap. In Oxford, at the conference, I sat by chance during the intermission at a small table. There was, like this in Spain, I was with Orwell, so there was a gentleman sitting next to me. And I had just got another rejection slip for the breakdown of nations, which reached me in Oxford. So I said, I'll never submit my book to a publisher again. What I shall do is to transcribe it on medieval parchment, <laughs> illuminated lettering, then I have a rarity and sell it at an auction. And I said, the reason is that publishers cannot place me because there hasn't been a legitimate anarchist writer in half a century. So the gentleman said, very gently, maybe you let me have a look at the manuscript. No, I'm too a publisher, uh, a, a anarchist, a gentle anarchist, but I'm also a publisher. So I said, some doubt, okay, give me a card, I'll send it to you. So he gave me his card, I could have fallen underneath the table. Sir Herbert Reed, I said, there has been a legitimate anarchist writing in half a century, and I sit next to the most distinguished anarchist, art critic, poet. So 
if that hadn't been, my book would never have been published. So I sent it, and he published it, and we became close friends. <laughs> he was the first one who understood what I'm arguing, that it was not a defense, not an attack on policies, but I tried to pull the rug from underneath the feet of the age, which pays homage to the multitudes at the expense of the individual, and then passes itself off as the guardian of freedom. In 1956, Leopold Kor moved from Rutgers to the University of Puerto Rico in San Juan. There he taught economics and contributed to local papers and magazines, mainly on the subject of cities and city planning. These occasional essays were recently collected and published under the title The Inner City. Though many are about planning controversies of 30 years ago, they still display a keen eye, a trenchant wit, and a considerable talent for satire. At a time when Puerto Rico was undergoing a rapid, destructive, and disorienting modernization, Core denounced the ambitions of planners and praised the native sense with which people make their own environments. Comparing the city to a living body, he favored designs fostering beauty, conviviality, and organic patterns of relatedness. The ugly, the abstract, and the mechanistic he damned. When planners defended their practices in terms of the sheer numbers to be accommodated, Core disagreed, arguing that numbers are always relative to the actual patterns in which people live. The size of nations depends not only on the birth rate, it depends on integration. An integrated society is larger than the same number of people, but not integrated. And velocity, uh, the thing in which a population begins to move, is larger than one which moves more slowly. So this, what we suffer from today is not a physical overpopulation, though it gets dangerous with five billion alive. But even with these five billion, Two-thirds of the world are still empty. Siberia, the immense emptiness. So what we suffer from is the velocity overpopulation. The people being integrated have so many communications needs and centers to visit that tourist places to call on that that blows up the numerical population, which may be 5 billion, the velocity factor turns it into 50 billion. And it is that which suffocates us. Now the only way of reducing this is not necessarily birth control, but size control of states to reduce the distances each of us has to cover to perform our daily functions. Not decentralized, but as I suggested yesterday, centralization red small, the small community, which slows down the need of our fast movements. And when we move slower, the effective population becomes smaller without a single person being killed. And the analogy I give, a movie director, he has the sense when he puts above the, uh, on the, the, in case of fire or emergency, walk, do not run. Because running multiplies the effect of a population as if there would be ten times as much in the audience. 
So he has emergency exits to cope not with his numerical audience, but with his velocity audience. So when you teach, you always find an entrance door for students is ample, a single door. They reluctantly, they filter through at slow pace. But when the bell rings at the end, they get stuck in the doors because the exit velocity is much faster. And the higher velocity has the effect of increasing the pressure. That's also the mystery between the traffic congestion. I pointed it out in this inner city when in the New Jersey Turnpike was opened, I think in 1949, the first of the great superhighways. I was in New Brunswick at the time, and the turnpike uh, was half a mile from the center of New Brunswick. And it said by 1975, so that was 49, there will be an added lane necessary. The 1975 density of traffic happened a week after opening. So our, the solution of all our urban living is to do away with this, the need for fast speed communication by the fact that from the suburb you must be in your office about the same time as if you would live a hundred yards away on foot. So the answer is return to the city in dense, elegant, small clusters at which traffic will not jam up because traffic is not needed. Many of Leopold Kor's ideas on cities or on transportation patterns were unusual in the 1950s when they were first expressed. By the later 1960s, they were beginning to get a wider hearing. One of the journals through which Kor found his new audience was called Resurgence, a British magazine which still exists. Resurgence was launched in May 1966. The main feature of its first edition was an article by Core called The New Radicals. The editor was John Papworth, and around him gathered a circle of like-minded thinkers. John Papworth had a very gracious, still has a most gracious house in London, and he gave the most stimulating parties, not with the idea of being stimulating, he just invited friends he met, you come at the same time. And there I met all sorts, so in the small uh, community, uh, no requirement of uh, having a wardrobe lady and so forth. <laughs> it brought people together at the dinner table. The symposium, Plato's symposium, which means drinking together. One of the people with whom Kor ate and drank at John Papworth's house was E.F. Schumacher, the man who would eventually popularize the philosophy he and Kor shared through his book Small is Beautiful. Soon they became friends and often lectured together. When someone has similar ideas, one has really nothing to say. I enjoy controversy, I enjoy people not converted, who are against me. That is, gives me life. But when everyone has similar ideas, it's more difficult. But in his case, the basis of the mutual enjoyment was a delight both of us shared in illustrating our ideas with lots of nice stories. <laughs> the philosophy was, of course, not new, but every story he told was a delight. He was a man of religious faith, without losing his humor. You know, sometimes the two don't go together. <laughs> and I'm uh, too much of a satirist, not a cynic. I too believe 
But my end is, I don't believe that what I think is good will ever happen. His idea was it could happen. He turned what I never could do to prove his idea by turning it into practical experience. So here, decided that on a small scale, the idea that one must buy bread from the bakers, or he can do it too, simply. That's not so complicated without diminishing his work as the coal board's chief statistician. So he decided one Sunday to make the bread for his biblical large family of eight himself. Took him two hours for a week. And from then on to the last uh, of his life, he always made the bread. In Puerto Rico, he was asked by a, a lady, yes, okay, but what does your wife say when you, how you leave the kitchen? And he said, lady, when I leave the kitchen, no one knows that anyone has ever been there. Now, I was very pleased. He was the guest in my house in the tropics, I couldn't figure out, there was never a trace that he had a shower. And yet he, his, his fragrance was fresh. <laughs> but never a dot in the bathtub of water. Well, after he said this, the same as with bread making, when he left the kitchen, no one knows that anyone had ever been there. When he left the bathroom, no one knows that anyone had ever been there and taken a shower. <laughs> so he, and always with the most wonderful loving. He was not an intellectual at the expense of emotions. So when he left, I told him now that you have been uh, my guest for two weeks, and we have a bit of things to settle. So momentarily he was a bit shocked. I put the sheet underneath his arms, his hand, and the pen, and asked him now in settlement, would you be kind enough, and under your own sig above your own signature, write the little verse you told me a few days ago. So this was the bill I submitted, and the verse was, little children, surely, age you prematurely, yet when all be told, they keep you young when old. So this was the unknown, benign Schumacher. Schumacher and Kor remained friends until Schumacher's untimely death in 1977. By that time, Kor had left Puerto Rico and moved to Wales, where his ideas had had an enthusiastic reception among Welsh nationalists. The connection with Wales began as yet another happy accident, this time the result of a hostile review of the breakdown of nations in the London Observer by Cambridge philosopher Eric Volheim. It said this is a very important book. Everyone should read it. Everything the author says is wrong. <laughs> So a few weeks later, I get in Puerto Rico a letter. The signature was Quinfer Evans, president of the Welsh National Party. It made me feel a bit uncomfortable, but then when I read it, it was a marvelous letter, an Athenian letter of a Athenian small state nationalist, strictly not racial, but a cultural concept. And it started out, I read the review of your book in The Observer, and I thought, if an English paper gives a book such a panning, there must be something to it. So I bought it. And you will be interested that I'm trying to put into practice what you say. So if it had not been for that bad review, Quinfer Evans wouldn't have read the book. I would never have received an invitation to Wales, which, like Professor Rang's tea invitation, was one of the great things that changed my life. 
Corps moved to Wales in 1973. He became attached to the extramural department of the University College of Wales in Aberystwyth, a department charged with bringing the university to the villages of Wales. His colleagues there found both his ideas and his person so congenial that they exempted him from the requirement imposed on all other faculty of having to be able to speak Welsh. Today, at age 81, Corr has retired from the university and lives in Gloucester, England. He continues to lecture and write. Leopold Corr has made contributions to a number of intellectual fields, ranging over political theory, development studies, city planning, and economics. As an economist, he has called for the practice of what he calls a meta-economics, an economics that looks beyond its own professional borders for inspiration and insight. He challenges the supposed independence of economics as a discipline by pointing out that economic life is also subject to natural laws. The cycles described by the economist, he says, are no different than other natural cycles. What animates the waves of water, as Da Vinci said, also explains the waves of wind, of sound and light. So this is a meta-economics, these are physics outside, beyond economics. And then I'm at the door of economics, I open it and see another wave, business cycles. And what I mentioned, what I emphasized, the reason why economists can't grasp this, is that the structure of cycles has changed. These are no longer caused by the irregularities of business activities, which produces spells but they have an entirely different, a non-economic, meta-economic, physical origins. What we confront is size cycles. At the given size of integration, things become uncontrollable, not only by capitalist intervention, by state intervention, but by communist intervention. There are cyclical fluctuations, size cycles in the Soviet Union, but not having a Marxist theory explaining it can't be in a controlled economy. So they shoot the business managers. <laughs> so, so this is what I mean by the economic phenomena. To understand them must not to mathematicize or statistify things, but to philosophize them, to go back to the laws of nature. But to reason by analogy with natural laws is uh, anathema to the economy. To reason by analogy yeah. is anathema to the economy. Yes, it is an anathema to, uh, not only to uh, economists, already in antiquity there were statisticons who uh, accused the analogicon. An analogist is really very theological. On the assumption there's only one law. No one used more analogies than Jesus. And that was his impact because things we do not understand in one dimension in which we are unfamiliar in economics, but you may understand it in another dimension. So when I suggest the solution of bigness is break up, the big powers, I often use the analysis of an avalanche coming from the Austrian Alps. So the way avalanches are dealt with is that the controllers put small barriers, so, uh, concrete sticks, over a field. So when an avalanche begins to develop, it runs into this partitioning pillars which turn the awful thing into a harmless spray without damaging the beauty of the snow. And the thing is that politically nothing at all is lost by returning 
to smaller communities. So this is what I mean by meta-economics, this insights we get by stepping beyond economics and then coming back into economics with the conclusion, well, just, just the same thing as any other field. Core's thought rests on the idea that nature, including our own human nature, must finally be our guide. The scale on which we can happily live is given by our own embodied being. It is the scale of feet and hands and eyes, the scale of what we can see and touch and walk towards. It is the scale of beauty, which must always recognizably reflect our own proportions. Beyond this scale, we quite literally take leave of our senses and arrive at something which is ultimately monstrous and inhuman. What we can love, what we can know, what can be beautiful for us, all depend on there being a limit, a certain measure, Kaur says. Smallness is good because it is necessary, and necessary because it is the only scale on which we can actually grasp the world around us. In a small community, everything happens as in a large community, with the difference that there you can grasp it. As in Gulliver's travels, as a phrase that in the small circle are just as many degrees as in a large one. But in a large one, you get lost, you don't see the others, you become a specialist, alien. In a small one, you see them all. That is the essence of universalism. Little Athens, Aristotle wouldn't have had the chance of seeing only philosophers. They were not enough. So he had to talk with politicians, with, with maids, with servants, with shoemakers, with dramatists, with literary people, and out of this came the universalist civilization of our time, which is 90% Greek. Leopold Kor insists on smallness, but his thought is always supple and cosmopolitan, never rigid or parochial. Today, many of his once heretical ideas receive lip service, but often they are appropriated in a purely utilitarian way. It is Kaur's strength that he resists this easy appropriation. He sees that smallness, applied as a mechanical principle, could result in a world even uglier and more stifling than the one we live in now. It is only through ethical and aesthetic feeling, he says, that we can rediscover the proper scale of things. And because this elusive sense can never be specified, but only lived, Leopold Kaur remains, in both his life and his thought, an invaluable teacher. Tonight on Ideas, a profile of the Austrian philosopher Leopold Kaur by David Cayley. Technical production by Lon Tulk. Production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. You can get a transcript of this program for $7. To place your order now, call this toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. All right to Ideas Transcripts, CORE, K-O-H-R, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.